Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Monday night and the Luke Haskell show, part 10 of our explanation of the Gospel of Matthew. And Luke, would you believe that we started this Labor Day? <laughs> We've been almost <laughs> three months on this, um, and it's boy, it's 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 been a joy, hasn't it? Oh yeah, really. And uh, just uh, you know, you have a basic understanding of things, but when you start going deeper and deeper, studying these things in order to present it, it's just it just opens up more and more layers, and the mm-hmm. the the big picture just becomes more and more amazing. Yeah, you start to not only uh, pick up on all the little. You know, glean a little bit of the little hidden treasures that are in there. But you start to kind of see, like you said, the bigger picture of just what Matthew's strategy was and just what he was trying to, you know, to convey. I mean, here we are tonight. We're going to be going into um, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and three months ago, we, we, you know, we started with the, but the begets <laughs> started with the infancy <laughs> narrative and um, just, you just have that much more of an appreciation of, of the pressure that Matthew was under to tell this story. Uh, and um, you know, where do you, where do you begin? <laughs> where do you begin? And, and he takes 
33 years of Jesus' life and um, and sums it up into into 28 chapters. And we relive this every year, every year. Uh, this year, uh, you know, we go through that that infancy narrative, Christmas Day, December 25th. Uh, and then three months later, on March 24th, there we are at uh, at Palm Sunday. So we go through this every year in the in the church cycle. And you not only you starting to get an idea of the genius of Matthew's gospel, but you start to get an idea of the genius of the church and how they set the liturgical year up to m- mirror this this narrative. Every year we repeat the same cycle over and over again. It really is brilliant how they set it up. And uh, you begin with Hesed, the steadfast love. I mean, that uh, those begets are, are, are showing the Jews God's steadfast love all the way back to Abraham, where Abraham is given the promise that his seed will be as numerous as the stars, of course, that's hyperbole, <laughs> but and in order for a seed to be as numerous as the stars, Matthew shows us this genealogy, and in the genealogy, through that steadfast love, uh, God doesn't, you know, uh, adjust, you know, uh, uh, two Jews uh, at a time. He shows that the Gentiles also were coming into this family a precursor of a church of both Jews and Gentiles in order to be as numerous as the stars. That's why we hear the word remnant from Paul when we're referring to the Jews. And the development of this sacramental nature uh, of uh, of covenant that uh, God established Showing us how we are going to become, be 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 uh, be placed inside the mystical body of Christ through the sacramental nature of our of our uh, of our faith through baptism, and so we start with this promise from Abraham, and the sign of the promise was circumcision, and this sign showed the steadfast love to God, to Abraham, that this this promise will be fulfilled. And then Matthew shows the continuation of the promise going back to uh, Ruth and Boaz, Boaz being uh, a Jew, Ruth actually being a Gentile, who says, your God will be my God, my people will be, will be your people, and their heirs, uh, their grandchildren, uh, one is David, and from there we established the Davidic kingdom. And of course, uh, the Jews broke their uh, broke their covenant with with God, the the Mosaic covenant. And so God, uh, in that steadfast love, uh, was not going to use this Mosaic covenant that they broke with, but through Isaac, as Paul says will the seed come? And that seed, not many, but one is Christ. So then the begots show us all the way up to Christ. And what happens with that seed of Isaac? Well, we have 
the birth of Christ. And then we have soon after, we have this message that Matthew is giving us. And it is not just a Jewish message, but it is incorporating the Gentiles into this, into this fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And, we and it see was a hard sell, Luke. That, yeah, I mean, exactly. That, that, that point needs to be hammered home. It was a hard sell to the Jews. They, they weren't wanting to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the, the Galilee at that time was half Jews and half Gentiles. And Jesus purposely went to the Jews first, who they rejected him, except for the remnant, which begins with the with the with uh, the uh, twelve apostles representing the twelve tribes, and then you had actually Peter baptized the first uh, uh, Gentiles into the church, the family of Cornelius. So it wasn't Jesus who who actually you know, brought them into the church, but the one that he said would be given the power of the keys mm-hmm. is the one who had the dream that led to Acts 15, where Peter actually abolished 1,300 years of Mosaic law through the power of the keys when he says that uh, we are not saved by the law of Moses, but by grace. And both he right. explained that both Jews and Gentiles are saved by this grace, and the prophecy fulfilled the laws written on our hearts is grace given freely. This grace right. that came during the time of, of Christ. Right. But Jesus was showing it to us. He was he was he was showing it to them. They just weren't getting it. You know, when he when he talked about uh okay, so I know you've worked out in the heat all day long, but you're going to have to accept the same wage as these cats over here that just joined in the last hour. So he was showing them that it was going to be uh, something that it was going to have to be uh, shared with the Gentiles. He talked about the the two sons that were ordered to go in the field, and one said, oh, I'll, I'll go, but he didn't. And then the second said, no, I won't go, but then he did. And then the, the, the prodigal son, you know, all these parables, Jesus was showing what he was doing, but and and I and I understand why they didn't get it. It was um, it was very very difficult to grasp. But excuse me, when you look back in hindsight and you take a a, a view at it from forty thousand feet, it becomes clear. Yeah, definitely. And and if and if we put in that uh, a little key information here, you know when Jesus. Uh, uh, gave us, you know, that great, uh, you know, sermon on the Beatitudes. These were things that really did not connect fully in people's minds before this. And they really didn't connect until after Christ rose from the dead Mm -hmm. and after Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Because before Christ, we had the Code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. You had the Mosaic Law, which is basically what Paul says, a pedagogy, a schoolmaster for a child. Uh, the the uh, Jews were considered this uh, uh, children because they're affected by 400 years in, in pagan Egypt. And what did they do as soon as they were given the Ten Commandments? 
they actually broke the law at that time by making the golden calf, and it says they played. So they worshipped and they had pagan orgies in front of the, the golden calf. And so God already, you know, knowing that they, they've broken the law, they've entered the curse, you know, they were, they were, uh, they were uh, agreed through an oath uh, of death that they would keep the law. That was a sign of Moses sprinkling the blood on them, showing them that they are entered the oath of keeping the law and the curse of death for not keeping for for not keeping it. So, again, we're in a situation where uh, God, even though they've already broken the law at the very beginning, is still going to preserve a remnant of this people. And in Romans 9, Paul says, basically, if, if this promise was not there from Abraham, then they would have gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. In other right. words, God would have wiped them out the face of the earth. But that promise, that steadfast love that was established through Abraham, put the true sacrifice in abeyance until Christ, so that remnant could be saved. And so that in the end times, the Jewish people, uh, as, as our faith understand it, as our, our traditions understand it, is that something will give them a sign where they will come into the Catholic Church. They will see something toward the end, and, the, and they will unite in the true Passover, uh, which is the, the Holy Mass for the general redemption of are you Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, sorry. Sounded like I lost you there for a second. <laughs> no. So okay. that steadfast love. So, uh, so, so the difference between that that law that was basically, you know, rule, fear, and temporal punishment, and what the beatitudes expressed was something that was revolutionary. It, it was completely right. radical. Right. So. So. This occurred and began to spread throughout the world at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down. And it affects, uh, uh, you know, most people. That type of love affects, affects, affects most people. And they don't even know where it comes from. But that is Christ in the world. That's the Holy Spirit in the world. And that wasn't present before Christ. And so a lot of people get confused over this when Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. Well, that law written on our hearts is grace given freely. And the faith Paul talks about is obedience to the faith, living, living the, the covenantal relationship. And in that covenantal right. relationship is a religion ritual of the new covenant, which is established. I know we're kind of going off in the other direction, but... This is a, no, no, kind of a I think, to where we I think are. it's an important distinction to make because it's no longer formulaic. It's it's not checking off boxes. It's conversion of the heart. Uh, and and yes. it's as easy it is as it is for us to see it. It was very difficult for them. I mean, even when Peter poses the ridiculous question, uh, "How many times, Lord, should I forgive my neighbor? Seven times?" I mean, he's, he's looking for a formula, <laughs> and. Uh, and and Jesus is like, okay, you're not getting what I'm putting down here. Okay, it's not a exactly it's not about a, exactly right <laughs> because that is before 
the the Pentecost is because before the Holy Spirit came into the world. And right. so he's thinking in those it's thinking in those uh, legalistic terms. Right. <laughs> All right, so we're okay. at Matthew 21, starting with verse 1. Okay. And when they drew nigh to Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto Mount Olive, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go ye into the village that is over against you, and immediately you shall find an ass tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if any man shall say anything to you, Say ye that the Lord hath need of them, and forthwith he will he will let them go. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold thy king cometh to thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of her that is used to the yoke. Bethphage was a village of the Levitical priests. Uh, Jesus will ride on a donkey taken from the village of those who are against him. Uh, this village is around a mile from East Jerusalem. This is done on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. And on the same day, the lambs that were raised in Bethlehem were brought to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. So remember that Bethlehem means how bread. A manger mm -hmm. is an eating trough, showing us a precursor of the Eucharist. The lambs, in order to keep from being blemished, were, were swaddled. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. In Exodus 12, we read, uh, Speak ye to the whole assembly of the children of Israel, and say to them, On the tenth day of this month, let every man take a lamb by their families and houses. But if the number be less than may suffice to eat the lamb, he shall take unto him his neighbor that joineth to his house according to the number of souls, which may be enough to eat the lamb. And it shall be a lamb without blemish, a male, one year, according to which right also you shall take a kid, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, and the whole multitude of the children of Israel shall sacrifice it in the evening. They shall take the blood thereof, and put it upon both the side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. They place the blood on the lintel. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Where would we place our hand uh, if we were to, if our bodies were uh, the lintel? We'd be saying name of the Father and doorposts, Son and Holy Spirit. We would be making the sign of the cross. And those inside the church, uh, I mean homes, <laughs> consume the entire lamb so the angel of death would pass over. Uh, in reality, pass over our world in, in, in the true Passover. And redemption from Egypt is fulfilled in redemption from sin through baptism into the body of Christ through the blood of the Lamb. Without this redemption, there is no entrance into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. Without entrance into the royal priesthood, there is no receiving the grace to presenting the Lamb before the Father as the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. You cannot unite spiritually with the hosts of, of heaven, as Paul describes in Hebrews 12, 22, uh, in, in the true Passover, you know, without baptism. And baptism is being saved by the blood of the Lamb. 
Now, concerning the, the mode of transportation that the Matthew is, uh, is talking about here, Haddox gives us uh, get some good insight. An ass tied in a colt with her. This colt, which never yet had been rid upon, represented the people of the Gentiles to whom God had not given a written law as he had done to the Jews. Here was manifestly filled prophecy of Zechariah, of Zachary. It was now the first day of the week in which Christ suffered. He was pleased to enter into Jerusalem in a kind of triumph, the people making acclamations to him as to their king and Messiah. Both Jews and Gentiles, figured by the ass and the colt, are to be loosed and conducted by the hands of the apostles of Christ to their Redeemer. The Gentiles represented by the cult, though here, heretofore unclean, no sooner receive Jesus resting upon them than they are freed from every stain and rendered perfectly clean. The zeal of the Gentiles stirred up the emulation of the Jews. Therefore did the ass follow after its cult. <laughs> this approach of the Jews to the true faith after the vocation of the Gentiles is spoken of by St. Paul in Romans 11.20. Blindness in part has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles should come in, and so all Israel should be saved. St. Chrysostom writes about this, as is written, There shall come out of Zion he that shall deliver and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is to them my covenant, when I shall take away their sins. The prophecy of Isaiah 59.20 St. Paul applies to the conversion of the Jews, and thus both Jews and Gentiles are to take up our Savior's yoke, which is certainly sweet in his burden light. Now, Matthew, again, is making his case, refers back to prophecy when, when he writes, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of by the prophet, saying, tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh to thee, meek and sitting on an ass and a colt, the full of her that is used uh, to the yoke. So, as we explained earlier in, in uh, earlier presentations, uh, when the apostles refer to the prophecies, we should go back and read the complete context of the prophecy, because this is where they're they're making their case from. So these words come from Isaiah 62. So let's go ahead and read read the context from uh, from different areas here of Isaiah 62. <clears throat> I'll skip a little bit, just, uh, just so we so we keep the train of thought. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for the sake of Jerusalem, I will not rest till her just one come forth as brightness, and her Savior be light lighted as a lamp. And the Gentiles shall see thy just one, and all kings thy glorious one, and thou shalt be called new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. For the young man shall dwell with the virgin, and thy children shall dwell in thee, and the bridegroom shall rejoice over the bride, and thy God shall rejoice over thee. Upon the walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all the day, and all the night they shall never hold their peace. You that are mindful of the Lord, hold not your peace. Give him no silence till he established, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. For they that gather it shall eat. And shall praise the Lord, and they that bring it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. 
Make the road plain, pick out the stones, and lift up the standards of the people. Behold, the Lord hath made it be heard in the ends of the earth. So the daughter of Zion, behold, thy savor cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call, call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. But thou shalt be called a city sought after and not forsaken. So, and of course, as we have talked about in the early chapters, the physical Israel is fulfilled in the spiritual. And in the spiritual sense, those who Paul addresses in the church have come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem. Uh, Paul also shows us the spiritual Jerusalem when he writes in Romans 9, as, uh, as in Osi he saith, I'll call that which was not my people my people, her that was not beloved beloved, and her that had not obtained mercy, one that hath obtained mercy. And it shall be in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people. There they shall be called to the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. And for he shall finish his word and cut it short in justice, because a short word shall Lord make upon the earth. And Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been made as Sodom and we had been made as Gomorrah. This is that Hesed. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who follow not after justice have obtained to justice, even the justice that is of faith. But Israel, by following after the law of justice, is not come unto the law of justice. Why so? Because they sought it not by faith, but as if it were by works, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Of course, when he's referring to works here, he's referring to the works of Mosaic law, such as the religion, mm -hmm. such as the ritual and ceremonial law. Mm -hmm. But isn't it amazing, though, Luke, that this same mistake that they made back then of confusing the, the physical foundational Israel with the spiritual Israel is being made by so many today uh, that um, in the way that they're looking at events that are happening in the world today, they're, they're, they're seeing Israel as a as a physical nation and not as a spiritual reality uh, as God's people. It, it's, it's amazing that the same unbelief and lack of vision that existed back then is reemerging today. Isn't that, isn't that strange? And there's a serious warning. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing is I wanted to mention, I just thought I'd mention this. There's a ancient tradition. I can't remember exactly where I heard it, but there is an ancient tradition that the, um, that the ass that uh, Jesus rode in on uh, into Jerusalem was actually uh, offspring from the um, from a donkey that carried Mary to uh, Bethlehem. So there was a I'll have to look that up, but there was a there was a tradition, that, uh, and that's a that's a very interesting tradition, isn't it? You got me on that one. That's the first time I heard that. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're at Matthew 21, 6 through 11. And the disciples going did as Jesus commanded them. 
And they brought the ass and the colt and laid their garments upon them and made him sit, sit thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut bows from the trees and strewed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, the whole city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the people said, The prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. <clears throat> so this appears to be the first time in the New Testament scripture where Jesus rides on a donkey. All other times that we see him traveling, he does so while walking. So he was most likely doing so in fulfillment of prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion, shout for joy, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king will come to thee, the just and the savior. He is poor and riding on an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So Matthew is again making his case for Jesus as the Messiah, son of David, reestablishing the kingdom, which he is doing so in the sacramental form. Of course, he is doing this, showing us the Gentiles coming in the church. <coughs> Haddox tells us that Hosanna or Hosanna was an exclamation of the Jews when applied to God means save us, I beseech thee. When applied to a sovereign prince means vivat in Latin or long live the king. And of course, Messiah means king. So this greeting was given by people who saw or heard about the miracles, who saw or heard of Jesus referring to himself as the son of man, but who had no grasp on what he meant. So they were still seeing in, 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 a, in him a political deliverer, someone who would restore a purely physical kingdom of David and release them for the bondage of Rome, like Moses, a type for Christ, released uh, their ancestors for the bondage of Egypt. From Haddox, uh, we read further, it appears that the Holy Ghost on this occasion secretly inspired their tongues and through their means caused loud thanks to be offered to Jesus for an approaching blessing of which as yet they had no conception. These same words of acclamation are daily used in the preface, preface of the Mass and represent the exaltations of both priest and people expecting as it were and rejoicing at his coming. Verse 10, he entered by the golden gate, which looks toward the east, and which was not far distant from the temple, where the procession terminated. There Jesus, as high priest, made a solemn entry into his father's house, which reminds us of, uh, of Psalms 24, uh, where, where, where we hear, Who shall ascend into the mountain of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Uh, we'll read a few verses here. The innocent in hands and clean of heart, who hath not taken his soul in vain, nor swore deceitfully to his neighbor, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and mercy from God his Savior. This is the generation of them that seek him, of them that seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your eyes, O ye princes, and be ye lifted up, O eternal gates, and the kingdom of glory shall enter in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord who is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Your gates, O ye princes, and be lifted up. O eternal gates, and the kingdom of glory shall enter in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. 
this, uh, we can't stress enough that in order to conceptualize true Christianity in our minds, taking in the proper vision, we must move from the physical to the sacramental. Now, remember that Paul told the church of the baptized, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the New Jerusalem. So through our baptism, we live in imitatio Christi and spiritually follow him into these same gates of the New Jerusalem as his mystical body, with he as head of the body and high priest over the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. Uh, but what does Jerusalem signify over and over again? The place of sacrifice to God, the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. Why is the bread of the presence in the holies? Because as Paul explained, we enter the true holies through the true law of regeneration of baptism, and the veil after is the flesh of Christ and the church his bride. So the entire holies where the bread of the presence is kept that is fulfilled in the Eucharist is the flesh, but this is hard to conceptualize through the context of Paul saying the veil is his flesh, because once you enter the veil, you are spiritually in the mystical body. You have not passed through the flesh, but you become the flesh. Therefore, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, as also Christ does the church. You know, it's interesting. The um, there was a lot of significance uh, having to do with this, with the Eastern Gate, and uh, a lot of people believe the Eastern Gate is a is a typology of the Blessed Mother because it says that Jesus entered through that gate, but that no one else would would enter through that gate. And the interesting thing is that 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 gate was one of the first parts of the temple of Herod's rebuild of the temple that was completed uh, in 16 BC, which uh, if you do the math is uh, about the, uh, the time of the, of the birth of uh, our, our blessed lady. So it very interesting that, uh, and, and uh, St. Maria Vergreta, if you, I don't know if you've read her, her work, Four volume work, Mystical City of God, goes a lot into that. Oh, I that's, it. that's about it. <laughs> but that's. I'm sorry, what was that, Luke? I said I touched on it. That's about it. <laughs> that's, that's some pretty deep stuff. Yeah. So uh, it's it just really interesting how it just, all of these things tie together. That's the thing. It, it's this piece over here ties to this piece over here ties to. It's endless. It's endless treasure hunt <laughs> that um, I just uh, it's lost on our Protestant brothers and sisters who just uh, fling a verse of scripture and and you know call it a day. It, it's just it's endlessly mined for treasure. But it, none of these things. Yeah, just look at look at the example that you gave about about the the donkey. I, I mean. <laughs> Nothing is accidental here. Jesus could have showed up to Jerusalem with the donkey in tow, and nothing would have ever been said about it by Matthew. But no, he says, <laughs> as if to be overly dramatic, Jesus says, no, you're going to go over to this town over here, and there's a donkey over there that you're going to bring back here. 
just everything is done in a specific way to make a specific point. And you can read these passages 600 times, Luke, and every single time that you read them, you're going to pick up something that you didn't pick up before. It's just amazing. And we know that that uh, reference from Haddock's is really illogical because we go back to where Matthew said it is written. We go back to where it is written, and what was it saying? It was talking about the Gentiles coming into the church. (laughs) And Jesus rode on the ass who represented the Gentiles without the law. Right. But who would have picked up that in, in, you know, when this originally happened, who would have picked up on that? Nobody. I, there's just no way they picked up on that. It's just, it, I, I can just visualize them just scratching their head. Wait a minute. Jesus making us go all the way over here to get a donkey to come back. Why didn't he just bring one with him? It's just, it, it, I, I just see, I see the parallel of my own life. Because I, I find myself um, asking our Lord so many times, Lord, did you really need to make it that difficult? But he, he really does. He really does. Yeah, and uh, all for the greater good, you find out later on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at Matthew 21, uh, 12, 13, so... And Jesus went to the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and brought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the chairs of them that sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall not shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So, <coughs> excuse me. So the Jews came to the temple from all parts of Judea and often did not bring their sacrifices with them that they would give to the priest to be offered. So the money changers had a pretty good little business going on in, inside the temple gates. And it was for personal gain. They, they would sell the needed sacrifices. In this part of the temple, the court, it was called the court of the Gentiles. This is where pigeons were sold for sacrifice, and, and the pigeons were primarily sacrifices offered uh, from the poor. Let me, let me interject something. Let Go me interject ahead. something here real quick. It wasn't just that they were merely selling the animals for the sacrifice. But what they were doing was they were taking advantage of the exorbitant exchange rates from the yeah, we're uh, get Roman. There. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You were on your you were on your way to getting there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Mary's sacrifice of two two doves had nothing to do with personal sin. People try to use this as an example for uh, uh, Mary uh, uh, not being uh, uh, sinless. Uh, The laws were a pedagogy uh, uh, of Christ and need to be examined spiritually. Jesus was baptized even though he did not need baptism. He was not touched by original sin. The uncleanliness of menstruation required a sacrifice of two doves or two pigeons uh, for the poor. And, of course, when, when someone in Scripture writes, it is written, we should follow through and examine what is written. For this, uh, we go to Jeremiah uh, chapter 7. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and proclaim there his word. 
and say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, all ye men of Judah, that enter in at these gates to adore the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Make your ways and your doings good, and I will dwell with you in this place. Trust not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, it is the temple of the Lord. For if you will order well your ways and your doings, if you will execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, and walk not after strange gods to your own hurt, I will dwell with you in this place in the land, which I gave to your fathers from the beginning and evermore. Behold, you who put your trust in lying words, which shall not profit you, to steal, to murder, to commit adultery, to swear falsely, to offer to Balim, Balaam, and to go after strange gods, which you know not, and you have come and stood before me in this house, in which my name is called upon, and have said, We are delivered, because we have not done all these abominations. Is, uh, is this house then in which my name hath been called upon, in your eyes become a den of robbers? I am he, I have seen it, saith the Lord. Go ye to my place in Silo, where my name dwelt from the beginning, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because uh, you have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I have spoken to you, being up early and speaking, and you have not heard, and I have not called you, and you have not answered, I will do this to this house in which my name is called upon, and in which you tr- in, in which you trust, and the place which I have given you, and your fathers, as I do did to Silo, and I will cast you away from before my face, as I have cast away all your brethren, the whole seed of Ephraim. It's a there's a pretty powerful rebuke here. Yeah, and we see this being fulfilled in in Christ entering the temple. <clears throat> so. Matthew 21, 14 through 16 reads, And there came to him the blind and the lame in the temple, and he healed them. And the chief priests and scribes, seeing wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, were moved with indignation, and said to him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said to them, Yea, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and of sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. <coughs> so the Pharisees hated that Jesus was being viewed as someone greater than they were. He healed a blind man right in front of their eyes, and they were so caught up in their own self-love and power over others that they feared he would usurp their power. So Jesus reading the indignation that was in their hearts guided them to an example of, of the simple childlike humility they had an absence of. Jesus refuses to silence the children who sang his praise and reminded the Pharisees of the Psalms, which probably shocked and infuriated them because Jesus was preparing his own cross and knew that his words would, would lead to his demise. So in these words to the Pharisees, he was again calling himself the son of man meaning God, and <clears throat> the Pharisees, you know, really knew this, the, the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, I mean, this would freak them out. 
And, you know, we'll go th- we go through and read the gospel, but then we should also think, what did the Pharisees know when Jesus was talking to them? So we'll read this. Out of the mouths of infants and sucklings thou hast perfected praise, because thy enemies thou mayest destroy the enemy and the avenger. For I will behold thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast founded. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little less than the angels. Thou hast crowned him from glory and honor, and hast set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast subjected all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, wherever the beasts, also the fields the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, our Lord, how admirable is thy name in the whole earth. Wow. Could, could anyone who truly experiences scripture deny God? I mean, right. Jesus, Jesus begins with this, you know, uh, talking about the babes and the Pharisees would pick up on that. And all of a sudden, they're reading in their own scriptures about the Son of Man who's standing in front of them. Right. And it was it was their knowledge of the scriptures that was their undoing, because they were culpable. Because, yep. uh, because their pride was stopping them from admitting what they knew in their hearts to be true. Because they, they, they had the experience. They had the knowledge of the scriptures so they were denying what was right in front of their face they were basically denying what they didn't want to see not what they couldn't see yeah i think that uh, he was affecting them not really at a surface level but almost like at a subconscious level yeah and so So we'll go on to Matthew twenty-one seventeen. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Beth- Bethania and remained here. In the morning, returning to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a certain fig tree by the wayside, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he saith to it, May no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And the disciples, seeing it, wondered, saying, How is it presently withered away? And Jesus answering said to them, Amen, I say to you, If you shall have faith and stagger not, not only this of the fig tree shall you do, but also if you shall say to this mountain, Take up and cast thyself in the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. So Bethania is a, a small village where the house of Martha and Mary and her brother Lazarus lived. This is the town where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's a suburb of Jerusalem located in the eastern slope of the, of the Mount of Olives. So to understand the mystery of the fig tree, let, let's go again to, the, to Haddock's. <clears throat> On verse 18, uh, Haddock's writes, In the morning, returning into the city, he was hungry. This hunger, though real and pressing, was mysterious, an opportunity of giving instruction both to the Jews and to all his disciples. By the fig tree, we represented the Jewish synagogue. The hunger of Christ was a figure of his extreme desire of finding it productive of good works. 
and there is no time for, nor season when the servants of God can be excused from bringing forth good works. Answerable to the pains of cultivation, he had taken for more than three years. The leaves were, were their pompous show of exterior service, the barren foliage of legal rights, void of the internal spirit and good works, the only valuable produce of the tree. By the withering of the tree, subsequent to Christ's uh, imprecation, the reprobation and utter barrenness of the synagogues is represented. St. Mark observed this in 1113, that it was not the season for figs, nor are we supposed that our Savior went up to the tree expecting to find fruit. But if some of the evangelists mention this circumstance, they only relate the surmises of the disciples, though he had before shown his power by innumerable miracles, Christ still thought it necessary to excite the hearts of his disciples to greater confidence. He had often exercised his power to do good, but now for the first time shows himself able to punish. Thus he testifies to the apostles and to the Jews themselves that he could with a word have made his crucifiers wither away and therefore that he willingly bore the extremities of the sufferings he should in a few days have to undergo. Chrysostom writes in verse 21, Jesus again refers to the power of faith, and, is, and this reminds us of how he said, referring to his miracles, telling the apostles that they would do greater things than these. There's a book called uh, Saints uh, Who Raised uh, People from the Dead that uh, shows us in the, in the Catholic Church God's words being fulfilled not moving mountains, but something closer to it that is uh, probably a, a greater feat. You know, uh, mm -hmm. this list of all these saints who, who raised people from the dead. Right. And, you know, the cursing of the fig tree also seems to uh, seems almost like a typology of the, uh, you know, in the, in the upcoming chapters, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he tells the Jewish leaders of the day, your power will be taken away from you. Uh, and so it's almost like a foreshadowing of the, of the beginning of the end of the uh, religious rule of the day. You know, a lot of, there are a lot of people today that say that, uh, you know, the fig tree is a symbol of, of, of Israel, of the nation of Israel. Well, here Jesus is cursing the fig tree uh, and it, and it withers. And so it's almost like it's a foretelling of the withering of the old covenant Israel uh, being replaced by the by the spiritual Israel, it seems to be pointing towards it in that way. Yeah, then we have that reminds me of a Paul in Hebrews saying that that which is old is, is soon to come to its end. So yeah, Hebrews is written right. probably around you know, 66 through 68 A.D. somewhere around there, and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Right. So their right. entire entire formation of their of their ceremony and rituals went away with the temple so we'll go on and when he was coming to the temple there came to him as he was teaching the chief priests and ancients of the people saying by what authority dost thou these things and who hath given thee this authority jesus answering said to them i also ask you one word which if you tell shall tell me, 
I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or from men? But they thought within themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say from men, we are afraid of the multitude, for all held John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We know not. He also said to them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the chief priests and elders were questioning Jesus on whether or not he even had authority to be preaching in the temple and by whose authority above him does he do so. So Jesus challenges them with a question about who he is. They previously saw him heal in the temple and with authority cast out the money changers. One would ask, how could a single man clean out the temple? Uh, were those he was casting out uh, uh, seeing his majesty and power and simply followed his demands with no argument? Jesus' question about by what authority did John the Baptist baptize is a question the leaders asked themselves, which we see in John one twenty-five. By this time, John was considered to be a great prophet, so if they did not say that John's baptism was of God, then they would feel the indignation of the people. If they said his baptism was of God, though, then the authority would be being accused of killing a messenger of God. Uh, so in addition, it was this messenger of God who declared the messianic nature of Jesus. So it was John who taught that the Jesus was the bridegroom. The Jews understood the covenant meanings of marriage between man and God. God being the bridegroom, Israel being the bride. So the elders being caught in the question gave a dishonest answer in order to protect their own skin. And Jesus responded, neither do I tell you by what authority you do these things, because he, he read their dishonest hearts, basically. What he did, what he did was he, he, he tied them in knots with their own, <laughs> their own trickery and their own uh, double-mindedness. He completely turned against them and tied them in 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 a knot of their own uh, of their own wicked game. It's just it must have been hilarious to watch. <laughs> and they had to walk away with you know, just can't thinking anything, you know, just going blank. Right. <laughs> now these so. In their egos, in their in their you know believing they had all this knowledge, they just walk away each time dumbfounded. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we'll go on. But what uh, what think you? A certain man had two sons, and coming to the first, he said, "Son, go work today in my vineyard." And he answering said, "I will not." But afterwards, being moved with repentance, he went. And coming to the other, he said in like manner. And he answered, he said, I go, sir. And he went not. Which of the two did the fathers did, did the fathers will? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, amen, I say to you that the publicans and the harlots shall go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of justice, and you did not believe him. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. But you, seeing it, did not even afterwards repent that you might believe him so 
One way to see his parable is that the first son is resisting God to his face, is rude and obstinate, uh, uh, publicans and, uh, and harlots. As to the second son, if, if the elders were to say that the baptism of John was, was of God and John professed the coming of Jesus, then in the elders giving the weak answer, they were resisting God in Jesus. So the Jewish people as a whole resisted God and later a remnant did not. So we also understand that in, in the end times, many of the Jewish nation is to experience the truth and enter the church. The second son shows no intention whatsoever of going into the fields, working for, for God's kingdom, but lies that he would do so, showing uh, the self-righteous complacency of the Pharisees. So <clears throat> Matthew 23, 3, which we'll get to, uh, Says we we are soon approaching uh, we're soon approaching this, but it, it shows us that this character flaw, and at the same time shows us the, the authority that we passed on to the papacy in the chair of Peter. So let's read some of it here so we can get the full impact against those who say one thing and practice another as a second son. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, "The scribes and the Pharisees have sitting on the chair of Moses." All things, therefore, whatever they shall say to you, observe and do. But according to their works, do ye not. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy and insupportable burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But with a finger of their own will, they will not move them. And all their works they do for to be seen by men. For they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge their fringes. And they love the first places feast in their first chairs in the synagogues. Therefore, behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of you will put to death and crucify, and some of you will, uh, will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from the city to city, that upon you may come all the just blood that have been shed upon the earth from the blood of Abel, the just, even unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom you killed between the temple and the altar. Amen. I say to you, all these things shall come up in this generation. Now, let, before you continue, <coughs> know, let, me inter, let me interject yeah, here because this is very yeah. important. What you're seeing here is the book of Revelation. <laughs> in in <laughs> uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 24, it said, in her were found, was found the blood of the saints and the prophets and all of the holy men of earth. And this is what Jesus is saying. So what he's telling them is the curse of all mankind will be put on this generation. And the interesting thing about it is that a generation was 40 years. So what Jesus is saying is, all of these things will come upon you within 40 years. So this is the first of the prophecies of the of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And, the, and it gets clearer and clearer as we go on. Please continue. Yeah, that's fascinating. So Haddox gives, uh, explains, explains this same parable here. So into the kingdom of God before you, the publicans and the harlots were the first son who when told to work in the Lord's vineyard said I will not but afterwards repented went 
Their early life was a flat and flagrant refusal to do what they were commanded. It was one continued rebellion against the authority of God. The chief priests and the elders of the people with whom our Lord was now speaking were the second son who said, I go, sir, but, but went not. They were, early, they were early called and all their life long professed obedience to God, but never rendered it. Their life was one of continued disobedience. To refresh, uh, Jesus said, which of the two did the father's will? They say to him, the first, Jesus saith to them, amen, I say to you, that the publicans and the harlots shall go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of justice, and you did not believe him. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, but you seeing it did not even afterwards repent that you might believe him. And of course, Jesus went to those same Republicans and harlots. Yeah, and it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, just think how staggering this would have been to them, you know, because they were completely and totally convinced of their own holiness. Um, so, um, you know, Jesus is saying harlots and, and, and publicans are going to be entering heaven ahead of you would have been, I mean, Quite a shock to their rather large egos. <laughs> and he's building this up and building this up and knowing it's going to lead to his death. And this is, uh, when he says, I freely give up my life, he started doing this way back when he you know, first started right. teaching. Right. And he's he's not doing anything to uh, to soften the blow. I mean, he's... He's throwing gasoline on the fire. <laughs> exactly. So we're at Matthew twenty-one thirty-three through 41. Hear ye another parable. There was a man, an, an house, a householder, who planted a vineyard and made a hedge around about it and dug it in, in it a press and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went to a strange country. And when the time of the fruits drew nigh, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits thereof. And the husbandmen, laying hands on his servants, beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the former, and they did to them in like manner. And last of all, he sent to them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But the husbandmen, seeing the son, said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we shall have his inheritance. And taking him, they cast him forth out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the lord of the vineyard shall come, what will he do to those husbandmen? They say to him, He will bring those evil men to an evil end and let out his vineyard to other uh, husbandmen that shall render him the fruit in due season. To have a good image of this parable in our minds, we should first go to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. <clears throat> so we'll read it. I will sing to my beloved the canticle of my cousin concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a hill in a fruitful place, and he fenced it in and picked the stones out of it and planted it with the choicest vines and built a tower in the midst thereof and set up a wine press thereof, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, 
and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and ye men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What is there that I ought to do that I have not done to it? Was it that I looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it hath brought forth wild grapes? And now I shall so show you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be wasted. I'll break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trotted down. And I will make it desolate. It shall not be pruned, and it shall not be digged. But briars and thorns shall come up, and I will command the clouds to rain. No, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah his pleasant plant. And I looked that he should do judgment, and behold iniquity, and do justice, and behold a cry. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, Isaiah calls Christ a cousin as one who is of his family, his kindred, by descending from the house of David, uh, the tribe of Judah. As Matthew in the beginning of his gospel showed us, Jesus did. Isaiah is of the same tribe as Jesus, and in prophecy shows us the mourning of Christ over Jerusalem, which turned away from the covenant God made with the Jewish people. The master of the vineyard is God, the, the Father, and the vineyard is most likely now the kingdom of heaven in the church, the reestablished kingdom of David in the sacramental form, whereas before in the old covenant it was purely physical in nature. So the, the temple was destroyed and the Jews were placed in captivity in Babylon, and they were depraved of even the temple sacrifices. <coughs> we see the same af after the temple is restored, and again, Money changers were even committing use, uh, usury in the temple grounds, and Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, and in a sense, a spiritual captivity of, of the Jewish people due to their own making by not accepting Christ. In this, in this verse 5 where it says, I will take away the heads thereof, and it shall be wasted, meaning that God will withdraw his aid. And when this occurs, man is not able to stand on his own kind of sounds like uh, what happened to the United States and actually most of the world, you know, when we started separating from God. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Isaiah confirms this by saying in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel and the man of Judah, his pleasant plant. And I looked that he should go, uh, should do judgment and behold iniquity and do justice and behold a cry. So returning to the parable in Matthew, of course, the master of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is first the Jewish nation, and the husbandman could be the Jewish priest who, who just questioned in the last section the authority of God. So in right. verse 33, Jesus says, And the husbandman laying hands on his servants, beat one and killed another and stoned another. The servants of the master would most likely be the prophets who the Jewish leaders killed, Jesus says in chapter 23, which we'll soon get to, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that has killed the prophets and stonest them that are sent up, uh, unto thee. How often would I gather together thy children as the hen doth gather her chickens under her wings, and thou wouldest not. And to say on track, let's go read uh, again verse 37 to the end of the parable. And last of all, he sent to them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But the husbandmen, seeing the son, said among themselves, 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we shall have his inheritance. And taking him, they cast him forth out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the Lord of the vineyard shall come, what will he do to those husbandmen? They say to him, he will bring those evil men to an evil end and let out his vineyard to other husbands that shall render him the fruit in due seasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just got them so, to give the answer. <laughs> yeah, he, he just got them to basically announce their own condemnation. <laughs> they 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 announced the sentence on themselves. But, um, well, he he'll bring them to an end and he'll take their uh, their authority away from them. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> and the, the more you get into this, the more you just you, you're amazed at it because uh, when you're studying to present it, uh, you look at it so so much deeper. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Clearly, this is Jesus referring to himself as the Son of God right in front of the elders and chief priests who would persecute him and who would put him to death outside the walls of Jerusalem, outside the vineyard. So Jerusalem most likely in in the same area, Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, who was a miraculous birth. The vineyard is then transferred to Gentile nation with a remnant uh, of Israel. And we can see this in, in many prophecies uh, of the prophets who they they killed fulfilled including uh, Hosea uh, where we read and I will give her vine dressers out of the same place in the valley of Ancor for an opening of hope and she shall sing there according to the days of her youth according to the days of her coming up out of the land of Egypt and it shall be in that day saith the Lord that she shall, shall call me and she shall call me no more Baal uh, Balaam, which is we're talking about Gentiles here, and I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and she shall no more remember their name. And in that day, I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and with the creepy things of the air. And I will destroy the bow and the sword and war out of the land, and I will make them sleep secure. And I will spouse thee to me forever, and I will spouse thee to me in justice and judgment and in mercy. And in commiserations, and I will spouse thee to me in faith, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, and that shall come to pass in that day. I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and these shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy on her that was without mercy. And I will say to that which was not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. That is the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood we are baptized into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's about to get real heavy in chapters 23 and 24. <laughs> it's that's <laughs> The heat's about to be turned up quite a bit, but that'll be... Uh, at least next week. Please continue. <clears throat> so Matthew 21, let's read 42 to 46. Jesus, Jesus says to them, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. By the Lord, this has been done and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you 
and shall be given to a nation, yield the fruits thereof. There's the Gentile nation. And whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it shall grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard this parable, they knew that they spoke them. And seeking to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes, because they held him as a prophet. <coughs> Jesus is Isaiah here in Isaiah 28, where Isaiah says that this stone is laid in Zion. Isaiah tells another area that we will go up to the Mount Zion, through which the law and the wisdom of God comes forth from. And, of course, Paul tells us when he is referring to the universal church in Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to Mount Zion, you have come to the New Jerusalem, where the sacrifices are offered, which is fulfilled in the body of Christ, with Christ is head of the body in the church. And the kingdom has been taken from the Jewish nation and is now the Catholic church. And whoever fall on this stone shall be broken, or all those who have tried to destroy the Catholic church in the past. So the chief priests understood that this was this first was being applied to them, and they became enraged, and Jesus continues to bring about his own death. Yeah. But this is the point at which Jesus is put him on notice that that their time is their 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 time is up and he uh, this is the clearest indication so far that he's he's telling them, look you you know your time is up you're going to this kingdom is going to be taken from you directly challenging their authority and that didn't sit very well with them <laughs> nope so we're at Matthew chapter 22 now, and uh, we're going to read this whole uh, area here, 1 through 14. So, and Jesus answering spoke again in parables to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who made a marriage for his son, and he sent his servants to call them that were invited to the marriage, and they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell them that were invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my beeves, and my fatlings are killed. And all things are ready. Come ye to the marriage. But they neglected and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. And the rest laid hands on his servants, and having treated them contumeliously, <laughs> wow, contumeliously, put them to um, death. I'm going to have to look that one up. <laughs> Dewey Reigns has got some uh, got some tongue twisters here. <laughs> yeah, I never I never heard that one. Go ahead, please continue while I look that up. Yeah. But when the king had heard of it, he was angry, and sending his armies, he destroyed those murderers and burnt the city. Then he saith to his servants, The marriage indeed is ready, but they that were invited were not worthy. Go ye therefore to the highways, and as many as you shall find call to the marriage. And his servants going forth into the ways gathered together all that they found, both bad and good. And the marriage was filled with guests. And the king went in to see the guests, and he saw there a man who had not a wedding garment. And he saith to him, Friend, how comest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? But he was silent. Then the king said to the waiters, Bind his hands and his feet and cast them into the exterior darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
<coughs> so Jesus, knowing how enraged the Pharisees were getting, does not let up, but continues to seal his fate here. Jesus is again in, in parable describing the Jewish nation and the calling of Gentiles to the true faith, which if you remember, Matthew showed us this. That's showing us the precursors of the marriage between Boaz, a, a, a Jew, and Ruth, a Gentile, who said, your God would be my God. Then showed us how Jesus began his ministry in the Galilee, which is composed of half Jews and, and half Gentiles, referring to the prophecy when he said that a people in darkness have seen a great light. Right. The Jewish nation was repeatedly called to the marriage feast. Uh, John the Baptist called them to repentance repeatedly called called to the true meeting tent, where after we are washed in the lava of regeneration through the blood of Christ and our baptism, we enter the flesh of Christ as the bride and in the church of the holies as a true royal priesthood. In there we consume the true bread of the presence in the Eucharist on the true Passover, our our true Sabbath, which is our rest in in Christ in transforming grace, Uh, Christ where we through our high priest and the head of the body and mediator of the Father, uh, through Christ, present the true bread of the presence in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist of the Father as the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. Now, when the king went in to see the guest and saw there a man but not on a wedding garment, and he saith to him, Friend, how camest thou and hither not having on a wedding garment, but was silent? And he goes on and says, because he wasn't wearing his wedding garment, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He shall be bound and cast. In other words, he's not going to heaven. So those who not attempt to enter through the way God designed through baptism, you do not pour new wine into old wineskins, which is a type for baptism, uh, uh, who have not separated from the man of sin into the quickening spirit of Christ by this baptism symbolized by the white wedding garment, shall be a stranger to the kingdom and an imposter. And, oh, by the way, that word means to treat someone with great insolence, great insolence and disrespect. That's what it means. Gotcha, gotcha. So we're at Matthew 22, read 15 to 22. <clears throat> then the Pharisees going consulted among themselves how to ensnare him in his speech. <laughs> and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, God, can't, you just see them, can't you just see them huddling up? Okay, well, that, did, that didn't work. What, what if we try this? What, what, what if we do this? What if we do this? It, just, it, was, it had to be comical to watch. Uh, they're freaking out by now. <laughs> yeah. Then the Pharisees going consulted among themselves how to teach. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art a true speaker, yeah, right, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou dost not regard the person of men. Tell so, us there. So they start out with flattery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're going to pump him up with flattery. And like uh, Jesus is not going to see through that. <laughs> exactly. Tell us, therefore, what dost thou think? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, 
said, why do you tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the coin of the tribute. And they offered him a penny. And he saith to them, whose interpretation is this? They say to him, Caesar's. Then he saith to them, render therefore to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they wondered, and leaving him, went their ways. <laughs> so, foiled <laughs> <Boiled> again. <laughs> but it seems like they went their ways, and the, the Pharisees sent them, and they just kind of went, well, <laughs> I guess we're not going to help the Pharisees with it much. <laughs> right. So again, the Pharisees continued to try to see, this time trying a different tactic. Let's see how Jesus will respond to questions from those who do not represent themselves to him as a Pharisee. So this time they try and trap Jesus into a question that could expose him as one who is there to disrupt the secular system, to go against Rome, uh, whom the Jews will later fornicate with in the killing of Jesus. My belief is that the book of Revelation is what was most likely written before the destruction of the temple. I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> My belief is that the, uh, the whore Babylon is Jerusalem, and the Jewish authority who also killed the prophets and, and Babylon is pagan Rome, which beginning with Nero killed hundreds of thousands of Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to try this uh, just for better imagery. Uh, you can't find Protestants uh, as early martyrs. It's just faith alone, scripture alone, once saved, always saved, separation from the sacraments. It's, it's just not there. And they were Catholics, you know, the, all the early martyrs. So for our Protestant brothers and sisters to understand this and, and, and uh, to back it up, uh, I want to read a couple of accounts from, from Butler's Lives of the Saints uh, of one of the trials, uh, a couple of trials uh, of some, some of those uh, Catholics. So Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, writes about the martyr of Blandita, and this is, this is during his time. He writes, for when the Greeks, having arrested the slaves of Christian catechumens, then used force against them in order to learn from them practice among the Christians, these slaves, having nothing to say that would meet the wishes of their tormentors, except that they had heard from the masters that the divine communion was the body and blood of Christ, and imagining that this was actually flesh and blood, gave their inquisitors answer to that effect. Then these later assuming such to be the case with regard to the practices of Christians, Christians, i.e. Catholics, gave mm-hmm. information regarding it to other Greeks and sought to compel the martyrs, Sanctus and Blandina, to confess under the influence of torture that the allegation was correct. To these men, Blandina replied very admirably in these words, how should those persons endure such accusations who for the sake of the practice of piety do not avail themselves even to the flesh that was permitted them to eat. I didn't understand, but Blandina, understanding the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, would have put it on record. <laughs> so let's look at martyrdoms of, uh, of Pionis, Sabina, and Escapolades. Now, the Romans and the Greeks kept pretty good records on the trials of Christians, and, and Christians also wrote about the trials uh, as we have seen in the record of uh, the trial of Blandita. So we have a record from the trial of the martyrs, Pionis, Sabina, and the Sapolades. And I skip, I'm not pronouncing that right, but it just really doesn't matter. 
from what was called uh, the Decian persecution that occurred around 250 AD. So this was still over 100 years before the church put together the Bible. So an edict was issued by their emperor Decius, which ordered everyone in the Roman Empire to perform a sacrifice to one of the Roman gods. And the edict stated that this must be done in the presence of the Roman magistrate, and a document confirming the sacrifice must be signed by both the Christian and the magistrate. So <coughs> recorded in, the, uh, uh, in this manuscript is this trial. And Pionis is a is a Catholic priest, and Sabina and Escap, uh, Esquipades uh, were being questioned by the one of the Roman magistrates named Polemon. So Polemon says, "What God do you adore?" And Pionis replies, "The Almighty God who made heaven and earth, who made us all, who gives us all things in abundance, whom we know through Jesus Christ's word." Polemon responds, sacrifice at least to the emperor. Pionis responds, I do not sacrifice to man, which shows that she believes in the mass as a true sacrifice. Polemon mm -hmm. then interrogates him judicially, having all his answers taken down by a clerk who wrote on wax. How are you called, he said. Pionis responds, Polemon, of what church? Pionis says, of the Catholic church. Polemon, leaving Pionis, turned to Sabina. The holy woman had changed her name by the advice of Pionis, lest she should be found out and should fall into the hands of her mistress, who was a pagan, and who, under Emperor Gordian, wishing to make her renounce her faith, had chained her and banished her to the mountains where she had been secretly relieved by the brethren. So Polemon uh, asks, are you called? Sabina responds, I'm called a Christian. Polemon, of what church? Sabina, of the Catholic Church. Polemon, what God do you adore? Sabina, the Almighty God who made heaven and earth and whom we know through Jesus Christ his word. Polemon, again, and you, how are you called? Referring to Scapulis. Scapulis responds, I am called a Christian. Polemon, of what church? Scapulis, of the Catholic Church. Polemon, what God do you adore? Scapulis, Jesus Christ. Polemon, what? Is he another god? <laughs> Scapulates, no, he's the same that they have just confessed. After this examination that goes on, the martyrs were led to prison. The crowd around them was immense. Sabina held Pionis by his coat to support her in the crush. They arrived at the prison. They all took the generous resolution of not receiving what the faithful were accustomed to bring to the confessors. For Pionis, the holy priest, said, I have never been burdened to anyone. I will not begin now. So the history of Christianity is Catholic. Yeah. And uh, it's not one of faith alone either. <laughs> not even close. Right. So let's read, let's read again, starting at verse 17, uh, to, uh, to get a little bit deeper into this last uh, story here. Tell us, therefore, what dost thou think? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why do you tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the coin of the tribute and the offering. And Jesus saith to them, Whose image is on the inscription in the uh, whose whose inscription is on this? They say to him, Caesar's. Then he saith to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. 
And hearing this, they wondered and leaving him with their ways. And we'll go to the scholarly works of Hexier. The Herodians, that is, some that belonged to Herod and that joined with him in standing up for the necessity of paying tribute to Caesar, that is, the Roman emperor. Some are of the opinion that there was a sect among the Jews called Herodians from their maintaining that Herod was the, the Messiah. These soldiers for the feast of the Passover, which was to take place in a very few days. The Pharisees sent their disciples with these soldiers that immediately as the former ensnared him in his discourse, the latter might apprehend him. It is worthy of remark that these bloodthirsty miscreants sought to ensnare him in his words, not able to discover a fault in any action of his whole life. Chrysostom responds, Master, we know the Pharisees had instructed their disciples and the Herodians to speak in a seemingly friendly manner to our Savior, that they might put him off his guard and thereby ensnare him, thinking that Jesus, like other men, could be led away by flattery. Thus do all hypocrites act. They first praise those they want to destroy, and thus by their deceitful words lead them aside from the truth into all kinds of evils and miseries. So obviously you can't put one over uh, on God. And Jesus answers uh, easily uh, the question showing us again that his kingdom is not of this world, but sacramental in nature. Therefore, Jesus can tell those who are baptized in the church, you are not of this world. If you're of the world, the world will know its own. The world does not contemplate the Eucharist. The world does not unite with heaven in the true Passover for the general redemption of the world and every holy mass for 2,000 years and counting. Uh, the world does not know that it is the mystical body of Christ with Christ as head of the body that saved those in invincible ignorance who die in a state of grace because there's no individual salvation without the general redemption of the mass. The 12 tribes is a microcosm of the world, and then the meeting tent is the church militant on earth united to the church triumphant in heaven. The Herodians question Jesus, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Haddock says Judas Galeus, uh, about the time of Christ's birth, stirred up the people to a revolt, which though suppressed by violent measures and himself slain by the Romans, yet the doctrine he broached did not expire with him. Some even among the Pharisees were of the opinion that it was unlawful for the people of God to serve strangers and idolaters, as we learn from Josephus. The question, therefore, proposed to our, our Savior was insidious in the extreme and not easy to be answered without incurring a displeasure of one or other of the parties. For if he answered that it was lawful, he would expose himself to the hatred of the Jews, who were aggrieved with what generally thought an, an unjust extortion and a mark of servitude injurious to God, if he denied the legality of this hated uh, capitation tax, he would incur the displeasure of the Herodians and be denounced to Caesar. This later appears to have been a wish, as in that case, it would have been very easy to persuade Pilate that Jesus, uh, that Christ and his disciples coming from Galilee were favored of that sect, who from the name of their founder, Judas Galeus, were called Galileans, 
and some of whom we read in St. Luke 13.1, Pilate put to death, whose blood he mingled, whose blood he mingled with their sacrifices. Indeed, so determined were the enemies of Christ to injure him with Pilate on this subject, that notwithstanding his answer was plainly in favor, yet they blushed not a few days after to accuse him to Pilate of teaching it to be unlawful to pay tribute. We have found him to say they for they forbidding tribute to be paid to Caesar. So Jesus knew that the question by the Pharisees to bring about his death and even place him in a bad position to all those who witness his miracles and believed him to be the Messiah. Uh, sounds like a little bit what's going on with the you know the world nowadays. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and he calls them out. Uh, for the hypocrisy, for the hypocrites that they were. So Jesus' answer did not directly decide the question, nor did it incite the Herodians, um, uh, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, given unto God what is God's, is the answer because they understood a small part of the answer, that Jesus supports the authority, but they did not see the bigger picture of the reestablished kingdom of David as sacramental kingdom, where in obedience to the faith we, we give unto God what is God's which is divine worship and our very souls through a life of focusing on what is holy in, in a world that does not know us. Right. They were, they were so filled with indignity and hatred towards Jesus. That's all they could see. They couldn't see anything else. I, I mean, even, um, you know, at the, at the trial, they even say we have no king but Caesar. They're 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 even they're portraying Jesus as an enemy of Caesar in order to you know try to persuade Pontius Pilate to their side. So it, it just shows how filled with uh, irrational, insane rage they were, uh, and in the process that they, they they missed the entire picture of what it was that he was. That, that he was offering, he was bringing. Just incredible. And they would talk to God, saying, only God can forgive sins. Mm-hmm. These people who are so irrational, so irate. Right. And then Jesus would say, receive the Holy Spirit, who sends you forgive or forgiven to his first priests. And our Protestant brothers and sisters, who did you choose? Yeah, and and they and they quote that to us. They they quote that verse where the Pharisees say, "Only God can forgive a sin." <laughs> okay, you you realize you're quoting the Pharisees. <laughs> That's who you're using to support your argument. It's just, it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable, and and yet we see throughout Scripture. God working through an authority. God always working through an authority. Do as they say, because they sit on the seat of Moses. Right. So next week, we start to get into chapter 23 and chapter 24. That's when it gets real fun. I'll have a lot to say about those two chapters. (laughs) We in those Old Testament scriptures, man, the vis- the visuals are are really amazing. The drama just keeps building and building and building. 
Well, Luke, I um, if I don't get an opportunity to say this, um, I want to say how much um, I appreciate doing this series with you, how much I appreciate what you mean to this apostolate, and I hope you and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you very much, and, and you too, and thank you for the opportunity. All right. God bless, and have a wonderful night. Good night.